The task before us this morning is to turn our attention to a biblical view of work. And I think we'd be hard-pressed to overstate just how largely work looms in our lives. You have only to think about what we ask people when we first meet them. I had the pleasure of meeting Corporal David this morning, and it wasn't long before our conversation turned to, well, what do you do? It's just uh, the way we're wired to associate our work with our identity. And we do project that onto children also, don't we do? Uh, we ask them what it is they want to be when they grow up. What they want to be is uh, the question we ask. So um, this is what we're referring to when we ask these questions. We're referring to work. And so it can be really disorientating when we are untethered from that, if we lose our job, if we have to transition our job. Um, so the implications of what the Bible has to say about work are just as relevant to anyone who's ever had to try to answer that question. Whether you're just starting your career, you're near retirement, man, woman, stay-at-home parent, businessman, plumber, or writer, even children, kids, you can think about this when you're tackling your chores, your homework. There's something here for everyone. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to lean on both Peter and Paul. And we're going to start with Paul's letter to the Colossians. Look at chapter 3, verses 22 to 25. And then later we'll look at 1 Peter 3. But for now, I'd ask you to please stand out of reverence to the word of God as we open up. Colossians 3, and I will read verses 22 to 25. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Sorry, I didn't give you guys enough time to respond there. <laughs> you got to be quick. <laughs> All right. I'll just pray um, for, for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have designed and created us for work. It takes up a large portion of our day, of our week, of our lifetime. So we want to do it well, Lord. We want to be the same followers of Christ at work as we are at home and at church. Please use your word. Please use me to help us see your call on us and your promises for living out our faith in the way we work. Amen. So when I think about being a Christian and work, a few different questions come to mind. There are more out there, but here's what we'll try to answer this morning. One, what kind of work should Christians do? Two, what kind of worker are Christians called to be? 
Thirdly, we'll try to answer, what are you working for? As in, what is the Christian definition of success? And then fourth, and ultimately, I want to answer, how do we live out our faith at work? Okay? And I just want to first establish the context of our passage. Um, the, the church in Colossae that Paul is writing to in this passage is a good church. It's a young church, but a healthy church. The primary concern of the letter is to ensure that the church does not get led astray by the influence of human tradition, as Paul puts it in chapter 2. That the church is not influenced by any external set of man-made rules of morality. And I set this context up just to underline the enduring relevance of the text to the church. This is an evergreen concern to Bible-believing churches. It's as relevant to MABC as it was to Colossae. And so when, we, when Paul turns his attention in the letter to how Christians in Colossae can more practically live out their faith, we do well to listen and learn. We have not yet outgrown our need for Paul's inspired instructions. That's where we find our passage towards the tail end of this rather short letter where Paul starts to lay out some steps for living out our faith, first in the home, then outside the home, and here we find instructions relevant to work. It's not a particularly original place to turn in the Bible to cover this topic, and I'm fine with that. I'm not looking for original. I'm looking for faithful. Even with the context established, though, I can hear some folks pushing back. How can it possibly be relevant? Because I'm a B2B marketing, product marketing director for a commercial credit rating agency. How can Paul possibly have anything to tell me about my work? Well, fair enough. After all, Paul addresses this passage, you caught it, to bond servants and tells them to obey their masters and slaves. He's talking to slaves and telling them to obey their masters. Let's just put it out there. This feels rather dated, right? And note that the ESV Bible, which is the one in your pew racks, tells bond servants to obey their earthly masters. NIV and LT does the same. The original Greek puts it this way, obey your according to the flesh masters. What's Paul talking about? The word for master is kyrios. It's the same word for Lord. And Paul wants to make sure we understand he's not saying Lord, as in Lord Jesus, but earthly master. So he says, according to the flesh, Lord. And then he juxtaposes that at the end of verse 22. Do you see it? Fearing who? The Lord. Don't fear your according to the flesh, Lord. Fear the Lord. Fear God. Before we go any further, just one quick uh, important aside. I can't let this passage go by without underlining this. This is not an endorsement of slavery. It's not a commentary or a moral case for slavery. The passage is neutral on it at best. It acknowledges the existence of slavery. But slavery is morally reprehensible, as made clear throughout the Bible. This does not contradict that position. Clear? 
But this does serve a purpose. And let's think about the implication of what Paul is saying. No matter what level of authority your master or your boss has over you, do not fear him. Obey him, yeah. But fear not your boss, fear the Lord. And so this ensures that our passage is completely all-encompassing. Even if you, your work is under the complete authority of someone who literally owns you. So how does this translate to today's world? Who has the most possible authority over men and women these days? Well, like Corporal David, for example, if your commanding officer has complete authority over your actions, he literally gives orders and you're expected to follow them, even then, he does not have more authority over you than God does. So don't fear him. Obey him, but fear God. So as long as you have an according-to-the-flesh master of any kind, someone who has authority over you and your labor, then this passage is relevant to you. It can be an old-fashioned boss in a suit sitting in an office. It can be a foreman. It can be a police superior. It can be a board of directors and shareholders, customers, a teacher. As long as you do some kind of work and someone has authority over that work, this passage is relevant to you. And if you had any doubt, then Paul makes it clear in verse 23. Whatever you do, he's not particularly concerned about the exact nature of the work. He himself was a tent maker. Luke was a physician. Peter was a fisherman. You get it. So, there's just one more consideration I want to bring in before we answer this first question of what kind of work can a Christian do? This is what I want to consider. God has created an ordered world. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Then God brought order to the world. He did not leave it in chaos. Our world is under the curse of sin, yes. So it is a dim reflection of God's ultimate plan for our world. If you were with us when we went through Isaiah 65 together, you know what that ultimate plan is, but it is ordered even now. And it is served by the order that we bring to it by our labor. So what does this mean? It means that God provides our daily bread. And he does so through the work of farmers and bakers. But also by extension, you can think of the broader supply chain of the entire food industry, from grain haulers over the rails or roads to food distributors and food retailers and restaurants and food delivery services and on and on and on. For example, God provides good order and governance, and he does that through policymakers and bureaucrats and police forces and justice system workers. You get the idea. The world runs in an ordered fashion through governments and economies. And within the complexity of an integrated and global economy, there is a huge variety of jobs. And each one of those jobs fits within that economy and serves in one way or another the overall order that God has decreed. 
Even a commercial credit rating agency requires product marketers to develop the reports that banks and lenders require. Regardless of how boring every single one of you thinks my job is when I start to talk about it, my job actually matters to God. And that's a huge encouragement to me. And it should be to you also. Your work matters to God. And as Christians, we have freedom to choose our career path. Whether we work for the government, for ourselves as an entrepreneur, or business owners, for our own family as homemakers, if we work for a business or a corporation. In Colossians 3, Paul just says, within all that mix, whatever you do, there is no predetermined career paths. This is a matter of personal freedom. And so the only limitation on our freedom to choose a career path is dictated by the end of verse 22, by our fear of the Lord. But we knew that, right? The only place to find Christian freedom is in the fear of the Lord. As Galatians 5.1 outlines, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, the slavery of sin. The Christian fear of the Lord will steer us clear from a job that would displease the Lord. So we are, are, are there jobs that Christians cannot do? Yeah, sure. Any job that would cause you or others to sin? Think of a few quick examples. I mean, a, a job that would cause you to sin, I'm sorry, you can't be a cat burglar. Uh, you can't be a hitman. Any, any kind of, you know, what we call these a sex work is off the table. You couldn't, in good conscience, hold a job that required you to lie. You know, if you're a doctor, you, you cannot provide medical assistance in death. It would just be a gross violation of the command not to kill. And there are jobs that cause others to sin. You cannot work for a service that facilitates extramarital affairs. If you believe it or not, that's a thing. You could not work for an abortion clinic. You could not work for an organization that promotes false religion or anything related to the pornography industry. There are jobs that may violate your conscience as your Christian. Maybe it doesn't require you to sin, but it's a sustained temptation. Maybe it doesn't cause others to sin, but it causes them harm or takes advantage of them. It could be as simple as being an athlete in a sports league that requires you to perform on Sundays. You may decide that violates your conscience. Paul charged Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 to hold the faith and a good conscience. And he warned him that by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. We should heed that. We are reminded to fear the Lord because our job is not more important than our faith. The tasks we are assigned by our boss are not more important than the commands assigned by our God. Okay, 
What about this second question? What kind of workers are Christians called to be? Verse 23 says, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So the answer to this second question is fairly easily answered. A good worker, a hard worker, not to impress your coworkers or your boss, but work for the Lord because your job matters to him. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Verse 24 puts this into perspective, doesn't it? And it has implications on our third question. What are you working for? What is your definition of success? How will you know when you've made it? When will you be able to say, I have achieved my career goals? Are you working hard because you want to get the big house and the cottage and the boat? You want the early retirement to enjoy the cottage and the boat. I mean, even if you work hard, those things are not assured. You can't count on those things. How many times do we need to hear about someone who died merely months into their retirement? Months from their retirement. In fact, when the retirement age was set at 65, it was because at the time, life expectancy was 61. For anyone my age or younger, we have to deal with a growing realization that retirement is headed back towards that fiction. Anyway, perhaps you're working hard because you want to climb the corporate ladder. You want to be VP, have the big office, the impressive title. If you're letting your employer determine what success means for you, I'm afraid you're on the wrong track. See, your employer sees you as an employee. We spend so much time with coworkers. They can become mentors, friends, of course. But in relationship to your job, those things take a back seat. Your boss, your customers, ultimately, they see you as a supplier of goods and services. Do not perform your work for eye service or people-pleasing, as Paul says in verse 22. The most you're going to get is a tip, a bonus, an employee of the month plaque, maybe a promotion, maybe a raise. Those things are nice, sure. But Paul tells us here to work for Christ knowing that from him we receive the inheritance. Because Christ doesn't see us as an employee. He sees us as an inheritor, an heir. This is not a title you work to achieve. Christ sees you as a son or daughter of God, as a brother or sister to your church family, as a laborer entrusted and commissioned to share his gospel to the nations, as an image bearer worthy of sacrifice, as a redeemed creation, as an heir to an eternal inheritance, as a partaker in the eternal rule over all things. Now, these are measures of success worth striving for. Do not forsake your glorious inheritance for an employee of the month plaque. Do not trust such a shallow definition of success as that of your career. You can be the most overlooked employee at work. You may be passed over time and time again for a promotion. You may never get the awards, never get the congratulations or the pats on the back. And I know that that can hurt. You may even get mocked 
by your boss because you, you won't play the game the way he or she wants you to. But your work still matters to Christ because Christ covets not your performance, but your heart. And if you give your whole heart to Christ, then it doesn't matter what your coworkers or your boss think of you because your worth is in Christ. In fact, maybe you are getting all the accolades and the promotions. Maybe you are the employee of the month every month. But hear me out. Your worth is still not defined by something as fickle as your performance. Your worth is still and forever from Christ and his finished work on the cross. Your worth comes from your creator who created you in his own image. And your worth comes from your savior who died a horrifying death to redeem you and reconcile you to your creator and to grant you new life in Christ. You can work for the same company for 21 years, advanced, climbing up the corporate ladder. They can move you across the country. They can give you the biggest clients to manage. You can receive the plaque. And then a decision is made across the continent to restructure, and you get a meeting invite for 9 a.m., or you receive it at 9 a.m. for 9.15 a.m., and the subject line just says, catch up. And you find out in an instant that you no longer have any clients, you no longer have any coworkers, you no longer have a boss to try to please, and you're no longer an employee of the company. If you're thinking that sounds strangely specific, well, I can tell you a couple of other things. What goes through your mind at that moment is not any work-related regrets, you don't wish you'd spend more time on any presentation or made any additional client visits or worked harder on any proposal. But all of a sudden, the kids track meetings that you skipped for another meeting, the dates with your wife that you put off for a coworker get-together, and the birthdays you missed for a business trip, those things come flooding back to you in an instant. Hear this. All the sacrifices you make at the altar of that impotent idol called career advancement will be exposed as empty worship. You do not owe a corporation anything other than your best work. A corporation doesn't love you, does not sacrifice for you, a company is not capable of a true relationship with you. Layoffs are made to balance a profit and loss report on a spreadsheet. That's the bottom line. And if you're the owner of a company here, sorry, I'm not trying to pile on to you. If you're responsible for employees, don't, you're not and you cannot be, nor should you try to be God to your employees. Your job is to run a company to the best of your ability as unto the Lord. You know what? None of that. No layoffs or firings or bad bosses or frustrated career ambitions will ever change the fact that Jesus died for you on the cross and rose again to reign in power at the right hand of God. He did this even as you were still a sinner. That in your repentance, you may turn away from sin and towards God, who sees you not as an expense line item or a replaceable asset, but as a child. 
The God of the universe wants you to run to him as you would to a loving father. And if that's the case, it doesn't matter what your according to the flesh master thinks about you because the God of the universe loves you. And as Paul says, neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So be an honest worker. Do not cut corners. Work hard and do the job right in the fear of the Lord, not in the fear of your boss. Because your boss may not care how you achieve the results, You may be willing to turn a blind eye to some questionable practices, some shoddy workmanship, some shady deals. But God is after your heart. And if you do not give him your heart, then I'm afraid you're on the wrong side of verse 25. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there's no partiality. You don't want to go there. Now, I want to tackle our fourth question. How do we live out our faith within the workplace? Because if we're going to talk about being a Christian in the workplace in our cultural moment, then we need to acknowledge that the rise of the corporate DE&I is making it increasingly uncomfortable to be open about our biblical faith. The diversity, equity, and inclusion committees within corporate world, but even within libraries and everywhere else, have increasing budgets, influence, coercive powers in the workplace. From rainbow logos to lavish pride events, including drag performances held in the lunchroom, to signing commitments to being an LGBTQ ally, our adherence to a biblical worldview is no longer tolerated. And so I want to look at a different passage We're moving from Paul to Peter, and we're looking at 1 Peter 3. I'm going to read verses 13 to 17. First Peter 3, starting at verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, You will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter is not speaking to the same church as Paul. He's not speaking specifically about their work. The context is different. He's speaking to the early church in the dispersion, and he's telling them to expect mistreatment from unbelievers. So maybe this is a little more applicable to those who work with and for unbelievers maybe those who are working for a large corporation, for example. If you work on a family farm with a family of believers, 
Maybe this is not quite as relevant. Or if you work for a Christian-run organization. But at the same time, I mean, the world is rapidly changing. And I can think of a certain cake baker in Colorado to whom this is quite relevant. And you can pray for Jack Phillips, who has continuously tried to run his bakery in a Christ-honoring way, who politely declined to bake a wedding cake for the celebration of a same-sex union of a gay couple in Massachusetts, providing them a list of talented bakers who would be pleased to provide him with what they were looking for. And as you probably know, he was sued for discrimination. He was later harassed continuously, continues to be to this day, with vile pornographic cake requests. And even despite winning a case in the Supreme Court in the U.S., he continues to be sued, and he most recently just lost an appeal to a lawsuit against him uh, for refusing to bake a transgender birthday cake. So think about him as you read Peter, and as Peter sets the expectations that Christians will endure some level of persecution at the hands of unbelievers for their faith. And when you work out in the world all day, your Christian behavior we're, will appear peculiar. And you will open yourself up to ridicule and reviling. And Peter reminds us that our witness at work is important. In verse 15, Peter tells us that our witness opens doors for us to share the gospel, to give a reason for the hope that's in you. Back in Colossians, Paul tells us that we must make the most of these opportunities Colossians 4, verse 5, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. So I want to encourage you. In fact, I want to exhort you to live out your faith at work without fear of being mocked or ridiculed for your faith. Not because the Bible promises that if you're a good Christian at work, you will not be mocked or ridiculed, but because the Bible promises that if you are a good Christian at work, you will be mocked and ridiculed. And God has a purpose for those moments. And I also want to be careful not to make this a singular issue. The issue is not unique to our generation, our moment in time. In many ways, Christians have long being way too comfortable living two separate lives, one at work, one at home. But there's no such thing as a part-time Christian. When you live out your faith at work, you'll be mocked for not partaking in the gossip, for not swearing, for not going out for drinks, for not taking advantage of clients, not cutting corners, not padding your numbers, for not wanting to go play golf. And instead, you know, you'd rather go hang out with your family for any number of things. Recently, a brother told me he started a new job at a landscaping company and he refused to get high on whatever his co-workers were vaping. So they now view him with suspicion and derision. Peter asks, who would possibly mock you for being zealous for good? And sadly, this is not a rhetorical question. It's not no one. The answer is those who do not love good, those who are evil, because evil exists. So be holy. And while you're being holy, make sure that 
You're always ready to graciously offer the reason for the hope that is in you. You'll have opportunities to engage in conversations about why you are so starkly at odds with the culture. Because it's jarring. And when you're reviled, they'll expect you to repay evil for evil, to revile those who revile you. So when they call you crazy or bigoted or just boring, respond in love. And when you do, some may well ask you for the reason for the hope that is in you and then share the gospel. If you're holding on to the old Christian adage that you can share the gospel without words, I'm sorry, Peter just burst that bubble. They may learn the tune from the rhythm of your life, but you still need to give them the lyrics if you want them to sing along. And what opens up the door for this gospel opportunity, this, this amazing conversation, it's the jarring disconnect between expectations and your actions as you live out your faith in an unbelieving culture. Verse 15 continues, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So make your defense of your Christian behavior and do it with gentleness and respect. You're not defending your behavior by condemning them. You're not fighting back. You're not starting an argument. This isn't Islam. Muslims are commanded to defend the honor of their God. Christ does not need us to avenge him. What you're doing is inviting them into get to know Christ, to hear the gospel, and by extension to understand that they can't touch you because your hope is not in your ability to defend yourself. Your hope is imperishable and untouchable. Your hope is in God who will bless you, as verse 14 establishes. You're inviting them in to understand the gospel of Christ. You see, every workplace benefits from the presence and the witness of Christian employees living out their faith. We need Christians in all companies and workplaces and in leadership roles and in government and in all functions. But no Christian faith should be influenced by the culture of their secular workplace. Verse 16 says, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. What does having a good conscience mean here? This relates to our relationship with God. Make sure however you respond, it does not impact the most important thing, your relationship with God. Do not condemn yourself so that those who revile you in your good behavior will be put to shame. We trust, verse 12, which is just prior to our passage. This is the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's not our job to carry out justice. We trust, we trust God to do that. The shame that is promised will befall those who revile your good behavior in Christ. And in verse 16, that shame will be dispensed by God, not us, on God's timing, not ours, which according to his wisdom may be the end of their life. The proof point for the gospel is not a devastating argument. It's our work. It's our life lived consistently to honor Christ regardless of how difficult the circumstances get. The proof point of the gospel is love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It will be plain to see to those who are not blind. You're doing good because your zeal for what is good is born out of your new heart. It's evident. It carries through. Verse 17 says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. If you respond to evil with evil, guess what? You're evil. Do not become what you stand against, but stand firm in your faith. And you do this not out of a compulsion to make your, a big show of your piety, but because you carry within your heart the gratitude towards the Lord Jesus who suffered far worse indignities and mockery and shame and even torture and death. He submitted willingly to this, not as a punishment for anything he did, but for what we all did for our sinful lives. We know just how easily we could lash out as Peter did when they came for the Lord Jesus in Gethsemane. And so we should pray. Pray every morning before we head out and pray every day throughout the day that we would not lose sight of Christ, that we would not allow him to be obscured by our workplace culture, but that in remembrance of what Christ accomplished on the cross with the indwelling help of the Holy Spirit, we would live out our faith in all circumstances of our work life and in all other environments, praying for the fruit of the Spirit to be visible to all and that the Spirit would prompt others to ask for the reason for the hope that is within us, that we may point them to Christ. So out of this gratitude, Whatever we do, we work heartily as for the Lord and not for co-workers and bosses and for according to the flesh, lords, but for Christ, encouraged and spurred on by the promise that from Christ, we will receive the inheritance as our reward. This inheritance is forgiveness for our grievous sinful nature. This inheritance is salvation and redemption, reconciliation to our Heavenly Father. He will put our sin to death. He will put our grief and sorrow and even our death to death. We will inherit life itself, life everlasting in the reconciled presence of our loving Father. We do not work for gold stars, attaboys, plaques, bonuses. We're less concerned with building up a resume and more committed to building up a eulogy because we've already received our reward and that's our sure salvation. So we serve the Lord Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for all those who strive to live out their faith in increasingly unbelieving workplaces. Would you cause them to see you in the midst of their trials at work? Would you cause others around them to see you in the way they live out their faith at work? And would you grant all of us the words to explain the reason for the hope that is in us through your Holy Spirit? We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.